Hello, and welcome to Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Machion Diagnostics. In this podcast series, we will be discussing thrombosis and hemostasis from the perspective of our host, benign hematologist and medical director of Machion Diagnostics, Dr. Brad Lewis. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. With that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Lewis. Brad, take it away. Hi, this is Brad Lewis doing another podcast in the Blood, Sweat, and Smears series. Today's is a bit different. This is in honor of Pi Day. We're going to discuss not our usual coagulation issue, which is often brought to our attention by clients who feel like they need more information to understand our testing. This is actually a test that no one has ever called me to discuss, but seemed like it was appropriate to talk about today. So we're going to talk about Pi, or more specifically, we're going to talk about Pi-1, plasminogen activator inhibitor 1. So just to take a step back, generally been talking about the coagulation cascade itself, which is a complex system of, of activators and regulators. And in parallel with that is the fibrinolytic system, which also is a system of activators and also a system of regulators around it. Interestingly, at the end of the coagulation cascade, that fibrin surface is formed, and the fibrin surface itself is the source of its own destruction. The fibrin surface is actually where plasmin will be activated, so that on that plasmin surface, plasminogen is activated to plasmin in the presence of tissue plasminogen activator, TPA, or less commonly UPA, urinary plasminogen activator. This reaction itself, this TPA, related activation of plasminogen to plasmin on the surface of the fibrin is itself regulated by a number of things, but it's regulated in particular by TAFI, the thrombin-associated fibrinolysis inhibitor, and by alpha-2 antiplasmin, which inactivates the plasmin when it's free in the plasma, and finally regulated by plasminogen activator inhibitor. The plasminogen activator inhibitor inhibits the TPA-induced activation of the plasmin. The substance itself has a very short half-life. It is an acute phase reactant, goes up with inflammatory processes. And generally, if there's only a heterozygous mutation, there's not any clinical symptomatology. There have been a few cases suggestive of mild, very mild bleeding disorders in that setting. But the vast, vast majority, maybe all patients with PAI or PI inhibitors, deficiency have a homozygous mutation. Even among those homozygous mutations, the clinical variability is substantial. In a series out of the Indiana Thrombosis Center, I think there were about 10 patients who had homozygous mutations in pi genes, all of them with the same mutation, in fact, and all had unmeasurably low levels of pi activity and antigen. And there was tremendous variability from very, very mild to much more significant bleeding symptomatology. In addition to the bleeding symptomatology, which generally is mucocutaneous, often delayed after trauma or surgery, but in addition to that, there are also obstetric-related complications. And not just bleeding. Although there is peripartum hemorrhage and postpartum hemorrhage seen in these patients, there also appears to be a high rate of miscarriage. Now, let me just say at this point, there are relatively few series of patients with PI deficiency, so that much of what I say is based on anecdotal reports and very small series. But among those anecdotal reports, it does appear that there could be anywhere from 25 in one small series, 75% of the patients had had miscarriages. 
So there does appear to be an obstetric-related disorder with pie deficiency. This is not as surprising as it seems. Pie, like so many of the regulators in the coagulation system, probably has extra coagulation manifestations. It appears to be involved in angiogenesis. It appears to be involved in control of a number of inflammatory processes. So the story is still unfolding, but it's not surprising that there are other manifestations to this deficiency. Is it important to find out about it? Yes, it is important to find out about it. Uh, you can treat this disorder with fibrinolysis inhibitors. So definitely a diagnosis worth making. Having said that, how to make the diagnosis gets to be a bit more confusing. Traditionally, what we do, like we for all coagulation disorders, we do an, an activity and an antigen looking for type 1, where the protein is non-existent, where it's not formed. The antigen and the activity are raised or lowered in parallel or type 2, where the protein is dysfunctional and the activity is very low, but the antigen remains substantially higher than that. Having said that, the assays are not tremendously predictive in this disorder. We still haven't come up with a really good assay. Certainly, a number of people are beginning to look at this. Again, out of uh, Indiana, there have been studies on a global coagulation assay, an Ismajan uh, assay, which can be run on frozen plasma, so it may turn out to be useful, and looks at simultaneous thrombin generation and plasmin generation and may provide some information, although that isn't quite ready for prime time yet, probably. Out of that same group, there's been some data uh, regarding a euglobulin lysis time variant as well as a TPA resistance assay they've come up with. It may be that one of these assays or some combination of these assays will allow us to better understand the fibrinolytic system. As of now, it remains a bit difficult to sort this out well. Genetics are certainly available. We're beginning to understand the genetics of pi, although, as you might imagine, with such a rare mutation, much, I think, remains to be understood with much of what we know coming from family series At this point, if you had someone with leading disorder, particularly one that was relatively mild, appeared to be uh, delayed in onset after uh, trauma or surgery, particularly if there's a family history that goes along with it, you might looking at PI first with the functional assays and then with genetics to try to uh, hone in better on this diagnosis. Interestingly, this gene is also discussed at some length for its possible contributions to thrombophilia. In population studies, it does appear that we find an increase in one of the known defects that causes an elevation in pi. So that in pi, you can have an insertion of a 4G series, a 4-guanine series, in place of the normal 5-guanine series. And that 4G insertion is associated with an increased level of pi 1. In association with this increased level of pi 1, you do often see somewhat decreased plasminogen levels, which sounds on the surface like that should be a clear-cut problem. But in fact, if you look at patients with plasminogen defects, you can see patients with very low plasminogen levels who have no clinical manifestations. So elevated pi levels and the associated decreased plasminogen levels still remains a bit unclear, of unclear significance at this time. It may be that it's necessary to have a, a second mutation in association with the, uh, the pi polymorphism, that you perhaps in, in some series, you, if you simultaneously inherit a polymorphism in factor five, factor five Leiden, or a defect in the MTHFR gene, two very mild contributors to thrombophilia, but in association with pi, that may be of more significance. That again remains to be seen. It is interesting 
that we do see an increased frequency of the 4G insertion in a number of disorders in population studies. So that in metabolic syndrome, for example, not only do we see an increased frequency of the 4G, but patients who have the 4G insertion also appear to be at increased risk of developing diabetic complications such as nephropathy and retinopathy. In COVID patients, having the 4G mutation seems to possibly predict a poor outcome. As I mentioned, there have been some associations in animal studies between increased pie levels and organ fibrosis. And indeed, there have been a couple of small series of cardiac fibrosis in humans with the simultaneous presence, at least, of the 4G insertion. There's also some animal studies suggesting that the increased pie levels may be associated with tumor implantation. And in population studies, the 4G is indeed associated with an increased risk of colorectal cancer in some small series. And lastly, a number of small series have suggested that pregnancy issues, recurrent miscarriages in particular, seem to be in population studies associated with the 4G uh, polymorphism. So we not only have a mild bleeding disorder with PI, but PI is also perhaps gives rise to a number of extracoagulation complications in the metabolic syndrome and organ fibrosis, and may also be associated with pregnancy-related complications. So on that note, uh, let me just say to you, happy PI Day. Hopefully someone was interested in hearing about PI today. Certainly the right day to hear about it. Look forward to talking with you again with Blood, Sweat, and Smears a bit down the road. Thank you very much. That's it for us here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Macheon Diagnostics, your reference lab and CRO specializing in thrombosis, hemostasis, and rare disease. Thank you for listening. And if you have a question or comment or there's a topic you'd like Dr. Lewis to speak to, please send us an email to bloodsweatandsmears at macheondiagnostics.com. That's M-A-C-H-A-O-N diagnostics.com. You can follow Macheon at Twitter at MacheonDX. Be sure to subscribe to stay in the know. Share this podcast with clinicians you think might appreciate it. And we hope you'll join us next time here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears. 